Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip. Today's episode of Quick to Listen is brought to you in part by Bloodline. Bloodline, the new book by Skip Heitzig, takes you on a journey to discover an up-close view of the cross, revealing God's ultimate mission to save you from sin's destruction. To join the journey, visit thebloodlinebook.com. It's April 24th, 2019, and you're listening to Quick to Listen. Each week we go beyond hashtags and hot takes, discuss a major cultural event. This week on the show, we will be talking about the Sri Lanka attacks this past Easter Sunday. I'm Morgan Lee. I'm a digital media producer here at Christianity Today. I'm with my colleague, our theology editor, Caleb Lindgren. Hi there, Morgan. Glad to be on the show again. Wish it was under better circumstances. I feel the same way. All right, Caleb, who is our guest and who will be talking to us about this recent terrorist attack? Yeah, so this week we have uh, Dr. Ivor Pubalan. He is the principal of Colombo Theological Seminary in Colombo, Sri Lanka. In addition to regular teaching, uh, Dr. Pubalan also has over 30 years of ministry experience and preaches regularly in Sri Lanka and around the globe. He's the author of Everything Has Become New, Paul's Letter to the Ephesians, and was a contributor to CT's Understand the Faith Study Bible, which was produced with Zondervan. And then rounding out quite an impressive and active resume, uh, Dr. Pubalan is also the chairperson of Sri Lanka's first World Missions Initiative, Global Impact, and was recently appointed co-chair of the Theology Working Group of the Luzon Movement. So he's a very distinguished guest, and we're glad to have him on. Dr. Pubalan, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, uh, Morgan and Caleb. Thank you. Happy to be on the show. Yeah, and we understand that you've actually spent some time out here in Chicagoland. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, it was back uh, when I was studying at Trinity in Deerfield, mm-hmm. back in 2003-2004. Well, very well. We're excited that you're going to be joining us and talking to us more today about Sri Lanka and some of the stuff that's gone on there. I'm just going to kind of recap everything that's happened for people who may not be as familiar with the situation Nearly 300 people are dead after suicide bombers attacked three churches and three high-end hotels on Easter Sunday this week. An attack at Zion, a charismatic church, killed more than two dozen churchgoers, nearly half of them children. And an attack at two Catholic churches, there were more than 100 worshipers that had been killed. Christians, the majority of them Catholics, make up less than 10% of the population of the majority Buddhist country and have been reporting escalating concerns about their religious freedom. Open Doors ranks Sri Lanka as number 46 on its world watch list of the 50 countries where it's hardest to be a Christian. Much of the persecution has come from the Buddhist population, a religious majority in Sri Lanka. The country also has sizable Hindu and Muslim minorities. This week on Quick to Listen, we'll talk about the history of Christianity in Sri Lanka and what the reality is for the church in a nation of 21 million. All right, Caleb. So I don't know where you were and how you heard about these attacks, but um, I'd be interested in getting what your reaction was. Uh, We did our Easter sunrise service at my church. Um, It's always full with a lot of celebration and excitement, and this year was no exception. Um, And then after the service, I was spending the afternoon with my family that was visiting from the West Coast of the U.S. here. 
for Easter. Um, and we were just in their hotel room just chatting about a variety of different things. And we had the TV on and it was a news station. And I just happened to look over my father's shoulder and saw the report about the bombings in Sri Lanka. And my initial reaction, to be honest, I was mad at God um, because we had talked here in the office and with some friends about like, oh, you know, this is always a dangerous time for Christians around the world. And there's a lot of attacks that happen and happens on Easter. Um, and I, we had prayed about it frequently in a number of different contexts and not that God owes it to me to answer my prayers, but I was like, why did you let that happen? And I was very sad. My heart went out to the whole Sri Lankan community and uh, the Christians that were affected. And it put a, it put a, a damper on the Easter joy that I was already struggling with a little bit, um, just because it sometimes if you don't feel like celebrating, it can be hard to do. Yeah, it was it was just a it was a shock. It was very sad to see. Um, I don't know. I was moved to prayer and wasn't really sure what to do and how to react after that. Yeah, I think I also found out a little bit on the later end with you. I was overseas this past weekend, and since I was kind of in vacation mode. I honestly wasn't paying that much attention to the news, which is kind of, to me, the point of taking a break um, when I'm there. And I got a message from my sister, who also lives overseas, and she was kind of just like, I can't even fathom what happened. And then I was like, great. I only know what that means. And, I mean, obviously, it's Easter Sunday. And so you kind of, if, after covering this beat for I would even say like a year or maybe two years, you just kind of begin to associate Easter Sunday as being a day to kind of expect terrorist attacks. I don't think I expected it to be this intense and this awful. Obviously, besides these churches, we're, we're going to focus a lot today on the particular Christian population, but there were a lot of people that just were at these hotels, also on vacation, eating, spending time with their family, um, I, I was reading coverage about this one situation where a mom and her daughter, the mom is a like relatively like well-known chef there in the community. And the daughter had just uploaded a picture to Facebook that was saying like enjoying breakfast or Easter brunch with the family. And both of them died in this attack. Yeah. My, my sister who had also messaged me about this was in Sri Lanka a couple years ago. So it doesn't really feel, none of this stuff ever feels extremely far away. Right. We have this connection, obviously, with worshipers around the world because they are part of the body of Christ. But I also just feel a connection to the fact that the world feels so small in many ways. Yeah, so I'm glad that we're going to be able to get into some of the stuff today. Dr. Puwalan, I'm, I'm curious, where were you and how did you find out about this? Uh, actually, I was on my way back from the U.S. Uh, and I had landed in at Heathrow Airport. So I turned the Wi-Fi on, and the first thing that hit me was the news that just flooded in. I couldn't believe it Easter Sunday morning uh, to get that news. But, uh, you know, it was uh, such a shock because it's been 10 years since we've had any serious violence in the country. It's been such a peaceful period for us after 34 years of civil war. So this was a huge shock. I'm assuming, based on the fact that you work at Colombo Theological Seminary, that that's also where you live? Yes, I live in Colombo. Okay, so maybe you can just tell people, a little bit of our listeners who may not be familiar with the city, what it's like. Uh, Colombo is a, is just like any modern city, I guess. It's the only major city in Sri Lanka. Sri Lanka is a small island, 250 miles long and about 160 miles wide. 
but uh, the capital is home to many different communities and also an international community of people who come for business and uh, other other pursuits so uh, Columbus Theological Seminary is, is, uh, has been in the city for the last 25 years and uh, we have a strong Christian presence in the city along with other religious groups. So you could think of it like most major cities in that sense. One thing that I think is going to be really important for our listeners to know as we get into a more in-depth discussion about Sri Lanka is just how diverse the country really is. We've, we've mentioned a couple of times it's not a super big country. It's 21 million people, which is sizable. But there are Christians, Hindus, Buddhists, Muslims, and then there's different ethnic groups. And I'm wondering if you can just kind of tell us about the relationship that these groups have with each other. Yes, I think one of the confusing things for most people would be the difference between the ethnic groups and the, and the religious groups, because uh, the ethnic groups are often associated with a religion. Okay. So most Tamils, we have Sinhalese, Tamils, Muslims and burghers as our main ethnic groups. The Sinhalese uh, are mostly Buddhist. The Tamils are mostly Hindu. Of course, the Muslims are descendants mostly of uh, Arab descent, but Islamic. And then you have the burghers who are the descendants of European colonial migrants. And uh, that is a very small group now because the burghers began to migrate from the 20th century. And today we have a very small burger community left. So you have the four major religions, Christianity, Islam, Hinduism, and Buddhism intermingling for centuries. But also these are ethnic groups that have their own cultures and language and so on. I mean, we have two major languages other than English, Sinhala and Tamil are the two languages spoken in Sri Lanka. You've mentioned, and I think many people are familiar with the fact that there was a really significant civil war in Sri Lanka. When did that start and how long did that last and how did it resolve? Uh, it started in 1975 with what is called Tamil militancy, a minority Tamil community. Uh, there was a radical element that uh, wished to have a separate state in Sri Lanka. And uh, it was an armed rebellion which turned into a full-scale civil war. Uh, by about 1983, it sort of transformed into a full-scale civil war. And then many thousands of lives were lost. Lots of damage, lots of Sri Lankans migrated so that we had perhaps the second largest per capita diaspora until the Syrian war. Wow. Uh, next to the Lebanese. Wow. So we had about 2 million Sri Lankans outside and uh, out of a 21 million population. And so, for instance, if you go to Toronto or London You'll find a lot of Sri Lankans in many of these cities. The war really also brought us down economically. Sri Lanka is a tourist destination and was poised to become one of the main tourist destinations. In fact, uh, Lonely Planet voted 2019 Sri Lanka as the best place to visit. And so it's kind of really sad that we are back to the uh, challenges of our economy. Uh, the war ended in 2009 after a major bat I mean, it was a huge-scale war with uh, aerial bombardment and naval fights and so on. But it ended in 2009 on the 19th of May. Since then, there has been no bombings or violence or fighting or shooting, something that we went on, we experienced for 34 years. Wow. So you, you mentioned these particular different 
ethnic groups. And I'm curious, where will you find Christians predominantly when it comes to these groups? The Christian church is very interesting because uh, most Sinhalis are Buddhist and most Tamils are Hindus. But it is the only the church that uh, have, has representation from both these ethnic groups in large numbers. So in a way, the church is a strong witness to the peacemaking power of Christ, because you have uh, Sinhalese and Tamils that are not only members of the church, but uh, demonstrate a great oneness and unity throughout our history as a Christian church. That's been a feature of the church. So right through the ethnic conflict, this has stood out as something beautiful that the church has been able to show. And a lot of uh, guests that we have on the podcast to talk about um, uh, doing these deep dives outside of the West, um, there's a lot of pressure um, from the ethnic group that somebody comes from as they become Christian. If in the case of a conversion or even within, even if there's a history of Christianity in the family, the ethnic group exerts a lot of pressure on those individuals. Um, Is that the case in Sri Lanka as well? You know, uh, I have to be careful here. The the history of Sri Lanka shows a lot of peaceful coexistence between communities. So if you think of it, Buddhism and Hinduism has been in the island from before 2000, I mean, before Christ, from 300, 400 BC. And then Islam comes to the island around the 8th century. Christianity in its modern forms are from the 16th century. Uh, and so for centuries, these religious groups have lived together and not, you know, conflicted with each other, which is really something to keep in mind. Uh, but since the 19th century, there was the development of what was called Protestant Buddhism. Uh, it is called Protestant Buddhism because it was a sort of a ethno-religious reaction to colonialism, British colonialism. And uh, that then uh, led to some radicalization of Buddhism. And it was a small group that uh, has been sort of radicalized. Buddhism by its very nature is a peaceful religion. But as you probably know, in Myanmar and Sri Lanka and so on, there has been a violent turn uh, by some sectors of the Buddhist community. And with that, uh, there has been a change. So in India, you will find uh, radical Hindu groups. In Sri Lanka, it has been mostly a small radicalized Buddhist group that has been uh, uh, sort of challenging the church and challenging Christian work and ministry. So when people convert from their religious communities, in the past there hasn't been a lot of pressure. I mean, obviously families are disturbed when that happens across the world, I guess. But now there is this added pressure that's coming from the public accusations against Christianity and allegations and so on. And so families sometimes feel greater pressure from their communities. But uh, still many people do convert and their families are quite accepting and even participate in their new religious traditions. That's good to hear. Um, I, I was hoping that we could even unpack that a little further to help people understand. Again, for a lot of our readers who are mostly in the West, or at least many of them are, uh, we, we get these world watch lists reports and you know you have this whole ranking and it can be very like intense sounding like oh you know here it is and here's like the 50 countries where it's really hard to be a christian but i don't think there's a i don't think uh, many of us have a good sense for what that actually feels like on the ground whether it feels difficult all the time if that's like a regular 
part of life or if that's just certain elements or certain moments? Does it feel like you're living in one of the 50 hardest countries to be a Christian? Because from what you're describing, it sounds like for the most part, there's a lot of peaceful coexistence. I would say the issue is complex. One is that, uh, as you could see on Easter Sunday, churches all over the island could meet and have their Easter Sunday services. So we are not a country where uh, Christians cannot worship or Muslims cannot go to the mosque or so on. Every religious group is uh, able to practice their religion openly in terms of having their acts of worship uh, and uh, living, uh, living out their cultures and so on. From a legal point of view or constitutional point of view, there is religious freedom. But this can also vary from community or location to location. Uh, particularly when you go into homogeneous settings, which are more rural, the pressure is obviously, it's a social pressure. Uh, typical of, if you take uh, you know, the background to 1 Peter, how Christians had to live in that kind of community and be a small minority who had walked away from their previous faith and their previous cultures. And so the community then treats them differently. And so that kind of pressure does exist for our Christian brothers and sisters who live outside of the main cities uh, because they are homogeneous societies. And usually uh, one religious group will be the strong uh, community, will have its uh, religious centers. Uh, and uh, so the community does not want anyone to break ranks. And so this becomes a huge pressure and uh, even in terms of schooling of children, uh, taking part in community activities, burial of their dead, uh, there are many ways in which people face discrimination when it comes to those settings. And that has been the concern that has been picked up uh, by uh, organizations like Open Doors and Voice of the Martyrs and so on, uh, that, do in, that, that have been able to show that these are real pressures that uh, Christians face in their communities. This episode of Quick to Listen is brought to you in part by the MA in Humanitarian and Disaster Leadership Program at Wheaton College Graduate School, preparing leaders to serve the most vulnerable and the church globally. I spoke with Jamie Ayton, founder and executive director of the Humanitarian Disaster Institute. Jamie, so a student becomes a part of this program and they're not waiting until the end of the program to sort of get involved in this kind of help. No, actually just this morning I met before our classes with a small group of our students who are going to be helping lead some teams in Puerto Rico over spring break for the recovery process there. Our teams are typically a combination of students and faculty and staff. Our teams also deployed, for example, to the Philippines and Japan and Haiti. Uh, one of my colleagues right now is actually in the Kakuma refugee camp in Kenya, where she's helping to provide, and the rest of our team who's there, providing trauma training to some of the refugee pastors so that they can better care for members in the camp. For more information, go to wheaton.edu slash hdl. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m., we're, we're in, in, in our synagogue praying and... Sirens go off and they're and they're going on. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, every Jew in the world is weak. 
And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come, come here? Why? I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I, I didn't come home. But they, all my friends that were here were murdered, here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. I think that there's three main, I don't know if they're different types of Christianity or just three different Christian histories, but you mentioned that Christianity has been in Sri Lanka for a very long time. I can't exactly remember which century you mentioned. Was it the fourth or fifth century? Well, we've had uh, the present Christianity goes back to the arrival of the Portuguese in 1505. Okay. And that's Catholicism, as you know. And then uh, in 1638, the Dutch overthrew the Portuguese, and so Reformed Christianity was introduced. And then in 1802, the British overthrew the Dutch, and so all other forms of Protestant and Evangelical Christianity begins to arrive from the 19th century, early 19th century. And during that time, also the American missions reached out to Sri Lanka. So that's how we have all the different denominations represented in our churches. I'm I'm curious, how closely do these Christian groups work together? Or is there a decent amount of infighting within the church as well? I would I would say that in the last 30 to 40 years, maybe 50 years, we've seen a positive uh, growth in relationships. Previously, because of colonial power, you know, churches could get associated with colonial power, and therefore whoever was in power was also the one who had the upper hand, I suppose. But once colonialism ended in 1948, the church, the Christian community was recognized itself as a minority and has become more and more keen to work with one another. Although we are very diverse, we've got number, a great number of denominations. Uh, the main distinction is between the Roman Catholic community, which is uh, the Roman Catholic Church makes up about 6.5% of the population. And all the other Christian groups make up 1%. So the big distinction is between Roman Catholicism and other Christian groups. But the the relationship is very cordial. Uh, Of course, people do go from one church to the other and so on, but those are typical around the world. Uh, There is no fighting or, you know, strong rivalries that are practiced, which we we are thankful for. We don't have a lot of... Christian religious wars that have been rooted in our country. So that's good. Um, I, I'm curious what elements of culture that Sri Lanka shares with India and also the extent to which there is some particular caste system that also exists in Sri Lanka. Um, I only say that just because I've done a decent amount of reading about the caste system in that's intersection with Christianity in India. And I didn't know any if any of that carried over into Sri Lanka. First thing to say is that Sri Lanka has always been an independent nation with monarchies going back to three, uh, 300, 400 BC. Uh, India has, uh, Sri Lanka has never been a part of India, but culturally very closely associated because the Sinhalese are descendants, are migrants from India, and the Tamils are also from Indian origin. The Sri, original Sri Lankan inhabitants were the Vedda community 
uh, and the Vadda still exist as an Aboriginal people group in Sri Lanka, but they're a very small group now. Uh, of course, the Sinhalese who came from Eastern India and then Tamils who are from Southern India constitute the main communities. The Muslims came from Arabia. So we do have a lot of cultural sharing. Like, for instance, the Tamil language is actually original to India. Sinhala is uh, indigenous and only spoken in Sri Lanka, but it has roots in Sanskrit, uh, so goes back to India again. Uh, in terms of food and uh, customs and dress and music and so on, lots of influence, Indian influence. Caste system-wise, Sri Lanka also has its own caste system, both in the Sinhalese community and in the Tamil community. And uh, this has been one of our features. And to some extent, it did affect the church in certain parts of the country. But over time, the church has gradually worked, you know, through its theological transformation. The church has largely moved away from any kind of caste-oriented community living. So in the past, of course, you know, marriages and most important things like marriages and business, people would always check out the caste. But that is... Uh, very much less now. So with with that being said, how are Christians kind of generally regarded? Are they seen as rich or poor or educated, undereducated? What type of social currency do they have? So if I could just uh, draw your attention to the fact that Christians Christianity was associated with the colonial powers, which meant that Christians did have advantages during that 500-year period. Advantages to gain education, to gain government jobs. And uh, this is what created some resentment towards Christianity in the 19th century. But at the same time, Christian missionaries were oftentimes at odds with the colonial rulers because they were the missionaries were thinking of the people and the colonial powers were thinking of economic benefits. And oftentimes the missionaries championed the national causes. Missionaries were involved in, uh, you know, safeguarding the language and the rights of the people and so on. But uh, Christianity was regarded as, an, as a kind of an arm of colonialism. And that's an image or a, or a reputation that we are finding difficult to shake off because from the 19th century, this has been constant, this rhetoric has been constantly used that, you know, Christianity came with the Bible, the music, and the bottle, which refers to alcohol. Uh, and so this idea that Christianity came with a gun in one hand and the Bible in the other, these kinds of sort of caricatures of Christianity have been widely spread. So the church is regarded as, at, was regarded at one time as sort of wealthy, educated, elitist, and so on. But uh, 70 years after independence, 1948, now the Christian community is a minority and has been largely disempowered, uh, has very little influence in political forums, uh, and has to win the respect of the community by its, uh, you know, genuine application and uh, abilities and service and so on. And I think the, our society is gradually seeing Christianity now not as an, as, a, uh, as an elitist group, but as a very different entity. Another factor is that in the last 40 years, the church has become active to reach people for Christ. And the church began to grow again since the 1970s after being in decline for over 100 years. In fact, we were the only 
non-Muslim country in the majority world where the church was in decline. But because of the new efforts of evangelism and sharing the gospel, there have been many who have come to Christ and most of them have come from poorer communities. So Christianity is now has, an, has a changed profile with large numbers of poor uh, having embraced the Lord's gospel. I was curious, given all of that background and some of that history that you laid out, and thank you for helping us understand that, um, how do you think the Christian community is going to respond to the attacks that happened just this past weekend? This is the challenge for us also. In fact, we are beginning to talk about how we are going to respond. Obviously, we know the way we ought to respond, but how will it work out in the ground? So I think Christian leaders have to have a big responsibility at this point to guide the church uh, because previously we've had violence against ethnic groups, but this is the first major act of violence against the church. I believe the church, the Christian community, both Roman Catholic and non-Roman Catholic, is is well prepared because we have thought about violence and uh, issues of peace for many years, and we constantly reflect on the cross and uh, the gospel in all our churches. So this is, uh, this is going to be a good opportunity for us to live out that conviction. Needless to say, with such a, such a sort of painful experience, we also may be vulnerable to react in unchristian ways, unbiblical ways. And so the church leadership has a big responsibility to uh, bring the right values and the right views and right Christian perspective to bear on this situation. Since I'm assuming you've had a chance to speak with your colleagues and friends and other ministry leaders in the past couple of days, I'm wondering what the general reaction is that you're getting. Are you are you getting questions of surprise, anger, confusion? What does the general sentiment look like? I think uh, one is shock because it was so unexpected. As you know, we talked just a moment ago about the extremist Buddhist groups that have been targeting Christians for the last, well, since the 1980s and early 90s. And so we've been always viewing uh, the the threat or the danger to come from those quarters. Uh, one little thing to say about uh, Islam in Sri Lanka, it is, it is one of those very interesting features that Islam has been around for over a thousand years and has never been violent in Sri Lanka because it came as a came through Arab traders who had to sort of build good relations with the community, with the society here. So that Islamic tradition in Sri Lanka has been throughout peaceful. So there was no expectation that an equally minor equal minority group would be attacked by uh, extremists from the Muslim community. So it is shock at the outset, but there is also a sense of anger that uh, in the intelligence community had known, but the authorities had not acted on this information. A fair amount of information had been known about these attacks and this group that has claimed responsibility. Uh, so there is some anger towards the authorities, but also the danger at this point of, uh, uh, you know, beginning to look at a whole community as responsible. This is always the danger. So that's another reaction that I think will need biblical teaching and uh, counsel for the church to be careful. And there has been lots of Christians who are, you know, instinctively thinking about uh, how 
we must be thoughtful about the Muslim community who have nothing to do with this. And that's nice to see that uh, many Christians are concerned that they're even trying to write letters to make sure they express their position. And so those are initiatives that are happening at the moment. I'm encouraged to hear that. Are people afraid? I mean, going to have to go to church again this coming Sunday. You know, it's like a, it's like a, we have to set, we have to use a reset button now because we suddenly got transported back ten years, having moved around freely, not uh, not being anxious about going to a mall or going to a church service or any any gathering. Today, the government shut down all supermarkets uh, at five in the evening because that's the one place people are rushing to because of few in the night. They try to get as many you know, as much shopping done as possible to get stuff into their homes. And so that had become a target. Uh, so these really bizarre ideas that the supermarket could be dangerous. And now for the first time, Christians have to think of a church service because it's always a welcome place for the stranger, right? And all of this, uh, it becomes a soft target because by its very nature, the church is wanting people to walk in. And so uh, in the Zion Church in Batikolo, where a couple of our students and uh, those who are associated with the seminary also died. The the bomber had come to the church and was particularly being a, being a sort of a rural town. Everybody knows everybody. And so this stranger was identified and they were surprised to find him walking straight into the middle of the church. And the pastor uh, spoke with him and felt somewhat uncomfortable and asked a couple of his assistants to take the person out and ask him who he is. Uh, And that's how this bomber was outside the church when he detonated the bomb. But unfortunately, the Sunday school had just finished, and the children were due to come into church but were having breakfast and were playing in the garden, in the compound, where the bomber moved to, so that the larger number of casualties there, large number of fatalities were children. There's also this sad story of the Sunday school teacher who has let us know that uh, she had taught about the cross and asked the children that day, how many of you are willing, would be willing to die for Jesus? And the whole class put their hands up. And uh, apparently 50% of that class didn't make it. Wow. Those, are, those stories are extremely intense and also just speak to the fact that Obviously, a lot of these families were extremely affected at a personal level, not to mention the entire congregation um, who just feels extremely threatened. I I wanted to go back to what you were saying as far as shock. To some extent, as as people who cover and write about this stuff, we've seen, obviously, um, persecution of Christians around the world by Muslims. We've seen this happen, obviously, and it happens a lot of times in Nigeria would probably be the most prominent example that comes to my mind. And also the real radical expressions that are in the Middle East as well. But what I hear you saying is that that's really not a narrative that's been part of your country's history. And that for from what everything that I understand is that um, Muslims have really tried to stay out or the Muslim community in Sri Lanka really stayed out of the conflict during the Civil War, too. Yes. And I think that's why I made that point, because it's not common to find that in the world, because uh, Islam has moved forward since its beginnings, often through militant conquest. Uh, And that's the story of India, the Mughal invasions of India. 
but in sri lanka and in a few other southeast asian countries islam came through trade and so it was it was necessary for the muslim traders to develop relationships and uh, those traders married sinhalese women and uh, that's how we have the unique muslim community of sri lanka they are called moors because that's the name the portuguese gave them not because they were descendants of the moors but they are they are ethnically called the moors but they actually a mixed race of arab and sinhalese and of course some tamils now they speak mostly speak tamil uh, and have uh, done business and you know they have been kind of those people who live in a community uh, and uh, you know make themselves winsome so if you can think of 1200 years of history and not one major incident of violence against another community that is saying something right so i think that's important to highlight and in fact i was concerned that uh, young muslims will be radicalized due to the growth of uh, the extremist groups but also because in the last few years there has been some discrimination some targeting of muslims and uh, back in 2013 i was uh, i was talking about the danger of pushing the young the youth muslim community to the arms of extremist groups and i feel that this is an sort of a this is a sort of a playing out of that fear that was there well exactly i was just going to say that um in some ways this attack that was carried out by these very radical islamists is going to make life a lot harder for your everyday muslim yes so the everyday muslim is uh, is going to feel very threatened and uh, this is something that we have known with the con- previous conflict and that was the experience of the tamil community but i'm encouraged that the muslim leadership has come out strongly against this incident uh, and made their statements and i'm hoping that that will continue we are all hoping that uh, the muslim leadership will take the first steps to deal with uh, the the people within their community who have been participating in this sort of extremist uh, radical programs bringing in teachers from outside and so all of that will have to be i suppose the muslim leadership will have to take a major step and that will be an encouragement to the others and also in a way a deterrent towards a racist you know developing development of a racist agenda from the other community yeah i was impressed by the unity of response from all the sri lankan officials leadership both at a governmental and civil society level it seemed like everyone was very concerned and disturbed by what had happened and um it seemed like there was quite a bit of unity against this sort of thing being the case that there was a sense of pride in the um in the peacefulness of the last 10 years and do you feel a sense of sort of solidarity across the country in the face of all of this uh, definitely there is a solidarity uh, but these kinds of incidents do tend to do that but very quickly people return to their little enclaves or their positions and then we are back to business as usual which is the sad thing sri lanka is uh, has a tendency towards that kind of conflictual living i must um, in case i didn't sort of quite give the right impression in the last 10 years while there has been no 
you know, war, violence of that nature. Uh, attacks on churches and so on have continued. So you would have kept abreast of some of that, you know, occasional burning down of churches, uh, attacking Christian congregations. In fact, uh, when this incident took place, my first thought was that I, my first thought didn't go to Muslim radicals because in uh, on Palm Sunday, there was a major incident to do with the Methodist place of worship where the president of the Methodist church himself was held hostage and there was a huge threat to the congregation. And uh, on Good Friday, the, the Methodist church organized a, a sort of a silent vigil silent protest actually in the capital and we had a large number that attended that so my first thought was that this was a reaction to the palm sunday incident and the the corresponding silent protest so that that has been there and we have also heard of radical hindu groups that have begun to operate in the east of sri lanka particularly where where they are strong so that radicalization is coming from india where the inspiration is really from the Indian groups like RSS that have been against the church. So we have a fairly volatile situation. I mustn't, uh, you know, downplay the threat level because you have the extremist Buddhist groups that are very virulent. You have new Hindu groups that have begun to take the take the church to task, and now this now we have the Islamic threat. So. It is a very interesting situation to be in, but it is always, I mean, when we look at the New Testament, that's, there is no surprise in how Jesus taught the disciples and how the apostles also taught the church, that no matter where we are, we will always have to live out our faith in the context of persecution and resistance and so on. So there is nothing to be surprised by, although, you know, in, in the modern world, we tend to feel entitled to have a undisturbed Christian life. But uh, this threat level is there and we need to figure out how do we live out our discipleship in a context such as this. So that's the challenge. And that's why I'm committed to the work of the seminary at uh, Columbia Theological Seminary, because we have students from all the denominations. We have about 700 taking classes all over the country. We have extensions everywhere with this idea that in every province, we have nine provinces in Sri Lanka, we would like to see the church strengthened through biblical teaching. So the pastors and Christian leaders should be really taught the scriptures so that they can respond to persecution with, with the right Christian spirit. Uh, and also to be wise in doing Christian ministry, because we need to be wise, as the Bible says, uh, to know how to do ministry in this context and to help churches survive and grow as a seminary leader and as a, someone who preaches frequently, how are you going to counsel the church in this time, particularly in regards to its witness? Um, and I use the word intentionally with the Greek root in mind. Yes, I think uh, the church, because of the persecution that began in the 80s, I fear that the church uh, uh, lost its, uh, uh, you know, confidence to some extent with regard to evangelism and so we have to re-energize the church to you know to witness no matter what but at the same time we have a responsibility to be peacemakers in society and so the church i think the church has to be counseled 
on two foresight. One is that we have to think of the well-being of the church. How do we console the Christian community? How do we encourage the community? How do we teach and instruct the community? That has to be done with a lot of intention and maybe with greater sophistication than we've been doing. At the same time, the church has its face towards the world. And there we have to be committed to continue to witness because this gospel is a very powerful message at a time like this. So even in the face of this situation, how will society see us? What will they hear? This is a great platform because the whole country and in fact, even the world is looking at the church at the moment. And I fear that sometimes we react and say reactive things, but we should be careful to witness and to serve and to offer peace uh, and especially to demonstrate genuine forgiveness. It's not just a cliche, but to actually mean that we forgive those who uh, have sinned against us. Uh, these are some of the important things that I think the church needs to be prepared to do uh, and has been doing during these, these last 30 years of persecution. Many times the church has shown its forgiving spirit and its uh, willingness to reconcile and so on. Oftentimes, you know, we hear Christian saints, persecution makes the church grow. But that is only a half truth because in some parts of the world, as you know, persecution has wiped out Christianity. And uh, my understanding of the New Testament is that persecution made the New Testament church grow because the New Testament Christians practiced biblical teaching and pastoral care. And so that is the imperative for the church to be ensured of growth. We have to increase biblical teaching and we have to provide pastoral care. And so even this call where you are calling us, calling me and talking about the situation in Sri Lanka and the many emails that are coming is one way that the international church is communicating its pastoral care. That's one of the most important things in times like this. But we as a seminary also feel that this is our time to teach and to encourage biblical teaching in all the churches. When teaching and care pastoral care are happening, the church will grow. There is no doubt about it. That's the biblical model. Gospel will will remain undefeated. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Prabalan, for this extremely informative and even better, really nuanced um, understanding of all the different dynamics that are going on in your country. I know I learned a lot. For all of our listeners that have feedback, please send us an email. We're at podcast at christianitytoday.com. Or you can go onto Twitter where we are at CT Podcasts. All right. This podcast is made possible by you. Well, only you if you're a subscriber. That's how it works. And we just came out with our May 2019 issue. Caleb once again contributed to this particular issue with an article, I believe, about worship. Am I right, Caleb? Yeah, that's right. Um, so the article is titled True Worship, and it's by uh, Daniel Block, who's a Old Testament professor emeritus. In addition to having some really gorgeous artwork that- The uh, artwork John is Hendricks extremely did. cool. Yeah, I'm looking at it right now. It's on the desk in front of me, and it's gorgeous. So those of you guys who subscribe, a um, little treat for you. It's really cool. Um, but wow. the article I don't know itself- if it, it almost feels like kind of like comic book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's and the colors are awesome. And I think it really illustrates what the article is about, which I'm excited about uh, being a Bible nerd, um, that it's talking about the concept of worship. Uh, I think a lot of us 
here in the U.S. and um, in the West tend to think about worship in terms of the music that happens during a worship service, during a church service. Dan Block is going to expand that idea and look at like, what does the Bible mean when it talks about worship? He starts in the Old Testament, spends a lot of time there, but he also moves on to the New Testament. And his major point is that worship is a lot more about a posture and about an approach to coming before God than it is about any discrete action that we do, which includes something like, I'm going to cut Caleb off right now so that you are enticed. No. Caleb was going to tell you the whole piece. That's not the whole piece. can't do that. What about the details, Morgan? All the great nerdy details. Well, you definitely need to, people need to subscribe for those nerdy details. Uh We're not giving them to them for free. Uh Uh-huh. There's lots of great Hebrew and Greek words in there too, so you get all sorts of fun stuff. Yes. So revel in it, enjoy it. Again, you can do that if you become a subscriber of our publication. That is orderct.com slash quick to listen, orderct.com slash quick to listen. All right. Now is the time of the show that we call Precious Moments, which is when everyone gets to share something that has brought them joy recently. All right, Caleb, would you like to go? Sure. Yeah. As I mentioned at the top of the show, um, my family was in town from the West Coast um, for Holy Week um, to be a part of my church's celebration of Good Friday, Monday, Thursday, Easter, Holy Saturday, the whole thing. And it was really a blessing to have them here. The I attend an Anglican church, and uh, they like to do it big, um, and I've talked about it for years, and um, it was really a pleasure to have them here so they could see it for themselves and be a part of that. Um, it's very significant for me. It's a very important moment, the church here. And I think the thing that sticks out to me about it is watching the children in our church celebrate the holiday and look forward to it even more so than other big holidays of the year like Christmas or New Year's or Fourth of July or something like that, um, that this is the one that they look forward to. Um, and that has really... Um, stuck with me. And so it was really great to be able to share that with them. And I was very thankful that they were here. It was always great to see family. And people can find you. Yeah. Um, I'm on Twitter at C Adams Lindgren. That's C A D A M S L I N D G R E N. I tweet infrequently, but absolutely give me a follow. And then, um, yeah, subscribe to the magazine. I do a lot of editorial work for the magazine. So a lot of the stuff that I am doing, you can see evidence of in the wonderful stuff that our authors write for us. All right. Very cool. Dr. Babalan, would you like to go? Well, I'd like to be uh, to talk a little bit about uh, the joy of family as well. Uh, I was in the U.S. for these meetings, but also visiting our daughter, who is married to someone from the U.S. and lives in Philadelphia. And the joy of being a Christian family, to know that Christ has saved us. We attended a great church in Philly on Good Friday night and seeing a packed church of an average age of 25 was quite stunning, uh, joyfully celebrating Christ, uh, and also attended another church o- over those weeks. Uh, and seeing this passion for the gospel and uh, the commitment to world missions was really encouraging. Uh, another great joy for me has been the many people who have written in from around the world during this time, uh, even our call today has been an encouragement of the way that world church is at work. Uh, it, uh, it made me remember Hebrews 12, where it says that uh, because we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, and I know the author is talking about those who have gone before, but our cloud of witnesses are also those who are part of the body of Christ who stand with us and uh, cheer us on and encourage and console us. Uh, 
and that is what motivates us to run the race with perseverance. So for me, that has been a great encouragement. I want to thank you, Morgan and Caleb, for your encouragement as well, for your concern and prayers. So it's been a joy to see the World Church at work, and it's been a joy to see family members in Philly and London. Uh, most Sri Lankan families are scattered around the world, so we need to find ways to connect. But thank you. It's been wonderful. Do you have a website or are you on social media if people want to find you after the show? I'm mostly active on email. I don't use Twitter much. So IVOR at cts.lk if anyone wants to write into me. Okay, that sounds good. We'll put the link to your seminary as well um, so people can learn more about that. All right, my precious moment is very random, I guess, in comparison to these other ones that feel more traditional. So I have had a injury for the past three years where I can't do the splits on my left leg without pain. And I went to the physical therapist a couple weeks ago and she gave me some instructions. And I kind of, I mean, I like did it two or three times. I was basically supposed to just like massage the area that was like not feeling good at all. And so I did that two or three times, not the like every day that I was supposed to. And then I went to the physical therapist yesterday and she like worked on my leg for like, I don't know, 30 minutes. And then I could do the splits afterwards. I was like, this is literally feels like a miracle. How many times do you go to the doctor? I don't know. It's not the doctor, the medical professional. And they like help you in less than an hour. So I, it's not over. I'm still going to go to the physical therapist a couple more times. But I was kind of blown away by how quickly that injury. <laughs> That's what? great. What? I was just thinking as someone who's never done the splits in my life, I just wonder what that feels like. <laughs> <laughs> Well, there's like the way that it feels like when it stretches and then there's the way that it feels like when you're injured and you can't right. do it, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. So keep in mind, like it felt like I was like tearing something beforehand, mm-hmm. which is not a good feeling. No, no, I'm really happy for you. That's <laughs> Caleb's in pain thinking about this right now. I am kind of in pain because whenever I try to do the splits, there's no like stretching. It's just the tearing feeling. <laughs> All right. Well, people can find me. I'm on Twitter at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. That's it for us this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen. This podcast is produced by myself, Richard Clark, and Cray Allred. You can get this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, wherever you would like to get it. It is there. However, Apple Podcasts is the best way to let us know what you think of the podcast and to rate and review the show. Thank you, everyone who does that. We truly appreciate you. You can subscribe to this magazine by going to orderct.com slash quick to listen and subscribing to the magazine also supports and boosts the podcast as well. All right. We will see everyone next week.